So what I do is I rely on my colleagues, um, my network. I rely on the people that, that I know have expertise in these areas. And really that's, that's what design is, is, is about. It's, it's not about forcing your expertise onto a problem. It's about figuring out the problem and then finding the right expertise. And I'm Rohan, and welcome back to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories of how they got to where they are today. Hi everyone, welcome back to After Office Hours. Today we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Eric Richardson. Yes, Dr. Richardson is an associate professor of the practice in the Department of Biomedical Engineering and an affiliate in the Duke Global Health Institute. Yeah, Dr. Richardson is the definition of multidisciplinary. I mean, he's not only involved with BME and Global Health, but he actually worked at Medtronic for a while. So I think it was definitely interesting to um, hear about how his experiences at sort of such a large institution uh, contrasted with his role in tackling global health issues with engineering solutions uh, at Duke. Yeah, it was great to hear his nuanced perspective with all of his experience in the commercial world working at Medtronic and also with his time spent in academia at Rice and at Duke. Yeah, he talked a lot about how he journeyed from Medtronic to Rice and how he started a program there for master's students to help tackle global health issues. Yeah, absolutely. And Rowan and I, and I, I know probably hundreds of thousands of other students have benefited from the changes he's made to the curriculum in terms of implementing design earlier on, and I think students down the road will also benefit as well. So it was a great talking to him, it was great hearing his perspective, and without further ado, Dr. Richardson. Dr. Richardson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, we wanted to get started by asking kind of a bigger picture question. So you're a member of both the Duke Global Health Institute and a professor in the Biomedical Engineering Department. How does your work in both of these spaces interplay with each other, given that they are seemingly different fields? Yeah, great question. Um, so uh, I, I really enjoy the work that I've done in global health. And for a few reasons, um, I lived overseas uh, when I was in college. I lived in Central America. I've traveled a lot. And um, when I started working at Medtronic after graduate school, uh, one of the things that um, struck me is that I was working on at the time a, a $20,000 heart valve and uh, that that was exciting and very interesting um, but uh, but I realized that there were very few people in the world that I could actually afford a $20,000 heart valve um, you know and, and looking into it more I, I think many companies I loved working at Medtronic by the way and, and uh, I think Medtronic's thinking more and more this way especially in the last 10 to 15 years with uh, one of their, their CEOs that joined um, you know about it depends on where where you look, but something like you know ten to twenty percent of the world's medical devices. I'm sorry, 80, 80 to ninety percent of the world's medical devices go to ten to ten to twenty percent of the world's population. So uh, there's this huge disparity. I mean, we talk about disparities in healthcare, um, but I would argue there's even more disparity when it comes to medical technology. So um, that was something that for me has has been, I guess. Uh, a driving force in what I've done. So I left Medtronic uh, uh, early in my career. Uh, I had a wonderful career at Medtronic, um, but decided to go uh, to Rice University. And one of the things that attracted me there was starting a program in uh, global medical innovation. So my, my goal there was to start this master's program that would teach engineers how to consider these emerging markets in the design of products and really opening up their, their thoughts, their, their minds to innovating, not just for folks in, in emerging markets, but also with and alongside and in those markets. So very different mentality of, of you know, let's design something for Sub-Saharan Africa or for Central America, and then we go and you know, hand it off. That's, that, that model has been done for years. And um, it has, you know, obviously it's well-intentioned, well but has some serious problems with it. <laughs> Um, the, the idea um, that that I think many, even many companies, but also successful academic programs are really focusing on is building capacity inside of these countries to be able to design and manufacture, distribute and maintain 
medical devices um, to be able to benefit their um, their their healthcare systems. Um, in many in many circumstances, I I would argue that their their physicians and even in many cases their infrastructure is is incredible, and there are many very well qualified and talented healthcare workers. Um, oftentimes, what what differentiates healthcare outcomes in those situations is more access to medical technology and medical devices. So that's um, so that's that's a passion of mine and, and something that that I spent time building a program uh, around at, at Rice, and then a couple of years ago um, when I decided to come to Duke, um, that's continued to be uh, a passion of mine, and I got involved with the Global Health Institute. I have a couple of global health projects, but I'm just getting started here at Duke. It's been three years. And I really hope to dive into that uh, much more. And one of my one of my reasons for coming to Duke was because of the, excuse me, because of the global network um, that DGHI has and that and the global footprint that Duke has. And I hope to leverage that more. Uh, I've done a little bit of that, but I but I hope to make that a higher priority as I'm getting settled here. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's clear that you sort of had motivation, perspective in terms of you know when you got to Rice. Um, Moving into a space where you were sort of designing devices for, I guess, lower resource settings, um, how did you, you know, learn um, to tackle those challenges? I mean, I'm sure um, designing devices for different uh, communities with different levels of, you know, income or uh, resources av- available to them um, can be quite distinct from each other. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I would, um, and the challenges aren't what everyone thinks. So. Uh, in many cases, um, you know, oftentimes we, we talk about bringing, you know, engineering expertise to the table. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, I'll, uh, if, if people haven't realized, you know, there are brilliant engineers <laughs> all over the globe um, who are, are, frankly, even more resourceful than, 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 than most of us here in the U.S. Um, and I think what the challenges that I found um, that, that, that we face in terms of innovating in, in global medical technology uh, has a lot to do with the execution of those ideas, a lot to do with uh, things that aren't necessarily taught as much in academia, um, sourcing, manufacturing, regulatory trial, uh, re- regulatory approvals, clinical trial strategy, um, very much kind of people, policy, and social challenges that surround engineering and product development um, that that are important for engineers to know about and to innovate around and can be, um, I think, the problems that can be solved with an engineering mindset. And I think engineers can provide some valuable insight in this area of how to bring products all the way to market. Unfortunately, we don't teach that a lot in, in academia and uh, we teach design and um, I think that's the start of it and really important. And we do need to continue to beat the drum on on good design practices. Um, but those those can be taught where a lot of my own design projects and many of my colleagues design projects and many companies uh, struggle with in these emerging markets is really around just getting the product made, built, tested, approved out in the markets and then maintained. Um, so medical devices need to have a lot of support inside of a country. And that that is a challenge um, and one that I think everyone's still trying to figure out. That's, that's so interesting that you frame it like that. Just through my education at Duke, I... Um... Like you've been saying, there's a lot of emphasis on design and human-centered design is something that's been hammered in my brain, I think, a good, thousand times. Good. So everything, everything that you're saying, it sounds like second nature to me. I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your engineering training and background was and how um, you saw that there was a discrepancy between uh, the skills that you were taught as a student and during your PhD and then um, the discrepancy you realized once you started working at Medtronic? Yeah, yeah. Um... And, and, you know, I, 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 I'll say this, you know, I'm always, it's always nice, you know, as, as academics, I guess we always point out the discrepancies and the, 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 we, we critique, critique, uh, uh, organizations and, and things that are going on, but, you know, I'll make the blanket statement up front that I, I, I think that, that what, uh, what, what has been and what is being done at Medtronic and in higher ed is really great. And I wouldn't be a part of it if I didn't think it is. Um, but I think it's evolving and we're trying to figure out how to do it better which is exciting. Um, so uh, I, I did my undergraduate degree uh, in mechanical engineering. Um, and the reason why I did that is where I went to school. I, at, at Brigham Young University, we didn't have a biomedical engineering department. So I did physiology, I did some other stuff. Um, and then I, I did mechanical engineering. Um, and then when I left for my degree there, I, I went and I applied to a bunch of schools 
um, in biomedical engineering. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I got into to several uh, PhD programs, um, but ended up choosing the University of Minnesota, which at that time wasn't very recognized for, you know, high-end biomedical engineering research. And, and also biomedical engineering is still, was still a relatively recent field. But the reason why I went there is because it has one of the highest per capita um, med tech uh, kind of companies, or, or it has, has a very high concentration of, of, of med tech companies and also is home to Medtronic, which is, as you know, is one of the world's largest med- medical device companies. And there was a particular advisor there, Paul Izio, who I worked with, that had the fame of kind of innovating in medicine and really focusing on kind of putting students in industry because I never wanted to be a professor. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I decided to, to go with the University of Minnesota in part because I really wanted to learn the practical side of product development. I wanted to get my PhD, but I wanted to, to, um, to learn that very practical side of research and how to actually make products that were used and, and got to the clinic. So I went and did my PhD at the University of Minnesota and had a wonderful experience there ended up interning at Medtronic. Um, and then I started work for Medtronic out in California after I was done with my PhD. Um, so that was a little bit of a crossroads for me. At the end of my PhD, you know, the pressure is to get an academic job. I had a wonderful postdoc lined up in Boston um, that I could have taken and kind of jumped off and done kind of a typical kind of academic route, which I have I have no, no problems with. Um, but I was just interest, interested in this, like, this whole world of industry that I had gotten a taste of in some internships. And um, so I decided to, to leave, uh, um, leave the academic world and jump into a product development role at Medtronic out in California. And I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I led large teams of folks from manufacturing, marketing, um, quality, clinical, uh, you know, worked with teams from across the world in this really great company and learned how to Kind of execute that on that execution side of, of, a, of a product um, and also on the practical design side and so that was a lot of fun um, but uh, but then as, as as I mentioned before kind of my thoughts around global global technologies and then also um, I did realize I, I missed teaching I really love teaching and I love mentoring students I love the academic environment I love just being around young people who are at key points in their career where they're trying to make decisions about what they're going to do. And, and there's like a lot of, a lot of excitement, but a lot of questions. And I, and I just, I kind of missed that. And I felt like I personally could have the greatest impact if I came back into academia and was able to teach and mentor, but then also focus on product development. So um, admittedly, there's a big gap in my expertise around, and, and this is intentional, around traditional academic research. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of publishing and grant writing. I've, I've done it a little bit, but I, I, I do avoid it at all costs. Um, and, and that's, I, I know, I know that my, that statement might uh, be a surprise to many of my colleagues, but um, I'm just not, not super driven to, to do that. I, I love helping students. I love thinking about big kind of global problems and I love designing devices and figuring out good ways to kind of get them out into the product and into the market. And that, that tends to look much more like practical and applied uh, research and interaction with industry than typical academic research. So that's kind of my career trajectory in a, in a, in a nutshell. So that's why I went to Rice, started that program, focused more on a teaching type of a role, less of a kind of academic research role, and then um, started a couple of programs there, one in entrepreneurship, one in global medical innovation, um, and then was recruited here to Duke to do the same about three years ago to start the Design Health Program, which is a, an, an initiative across um, medicine, business, and engineering that focuses on that, that same topic. Um, you know, how, how do we get products out to patients in, in, in an efficient way, and how do we teach that? Wow. Um, you know, I'm really interested in that Design Health. You know, of course, I think um, a lot of BMEs, you know, we, we get, we've seen sort of your emails, and we've seen some of the projects that um, that, I guess, group of teams has been working on. Um, what was your goal in starting that? I mean, it seems like it was a very natural thing to do um, based on what you, you, you know, what you did at Rice. Um, but, you know, what, what's your overarching goal? And um, I guess the program has had a couple of years under its belt. And, you know, what are you looking forward to accomplishing in the future? Yeah, so, so Duke, um, as, as probably 
you you all know I, you you've been here at Duke longer than I have, so four years. I, well, I guess we're, we've been here. We we arrived the same. I guess we if you're seniors, we arrived in the same month or something here at Duke. So you're graduating with us. That's right. That's right. My first my first four years will be your first four years. So or your four years here at Duke. So I'm uh you know Duke has made a very deliberate play in, in design in the last few years. So. Um, what Mark Palmieri has done with uh, the Design Fellows Program with BME um, has been awesome. What Bob Malkin had done uh, with and and what uh, Kevin Caves and and just and and all those that teach design. I'm sure if I start naming people, I'll miss someone, so I won't. I'll stop there. Um, and then Ann Satterback, who was actually with me with at Rice, um, really has inspired me in many ways to to in, in her desire to teach design. And she came here to um, to to Duke a, a year before I did. So uh, Duke's making this play on on design education, which is really exciting. The purpose of design health and what I did, what I did at Rice was very fo- much focused at the gra- graduate level, and it was with Baylor College of Medicine, MD Anderson, and a few other folks, was to bring kind of that that additional piece and plug it into all the great design work that's being done and, and being invigorated here within Duke BME, and build an interdisciplinary program that's more focused at the kind of the graduate level. Um, which is something that 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 Ravi Belamkanda wanted to to focus on, along with some key partners in the in the medical center. So that's that was that was the challenge, and it kind of made sense. Everyone, so you know, I, I at at Rice, I became close friends with the you know the folks at Hopkins and Stanford and all these other places that that all had a graduate kind of design program, and everyone was kind of like, why does, hasn't Duke done this yet? Because you have an amazing medical school, a great business school great biomedical engineering school, all the right, right ingredients. And there have been some amazing collaborations um, in research and in product development here at Duke before I came here. Um, but I, I came here to Duke to solidify that and really just to, to work with amazing people and, and to help build this program. And so it's, it's been a fun three years. You know, we had COVID right in the middle of it, um, but was really cool to have that team kind of be turned around and, and focus on the engineering response team which, uh, which the design health group kind of led during back in, I guess, a year ago now. Um, so kind of to use that, that same kind of interdisciplinary, very practical um, product development approach to be able to design things like face shields and, and things like that for the healthcare center. So that was a lot of fun. But now we're kind of getting back to the, the, normal, the normal pace of things and, and really growing the program. So we started with 12 the first year that I got here. Um, this year, the program... We'll have this academic year, about 90 students will have, have been um, kind of touched by design health uh, in medicine, nursing, engineering, business, Trinity. Um, we have kind of a broader reach and, uh, and it's exciting. We have uh, several patents being issued, a couple of companies that are uh, being formed um, and the pipeline's just getting, getting, getting uh, kind of stoked. So we're, we're, we're gonna start seeing, I think more and more successes coming out of it, but, but most importantly, and this has been, I've been bullish about this, we really measure our success by the number of students that we teach because they might go off and become physicians or might go and do a PhD and become uh, an academic. Um, but we just want to make sure that they have that mindset of design when they approach problems. Absolutely. Yeah. Right now there's a big shift to, I guess, hands-on learning. Um, like you said, and, and something that I've definitely experienced, how do you think that we should balance the classroom side of things, which is definitely necessary, right? Like the basic math and physics is definitely definitely. important before you can start um, building things. How do you balance that with the need to get hands-on experience early? Yeah, good question. I think, um, and I'll credit Ann Satterback for really kind of, she does research in this area. You know, I think the earlier we can get to that hands-on stuff, the more that it motivates for many people, the, the, the more, um, kind of standard academic learning. So if, if you can see the application, I think this is just a general principle and, and me or Anne, or, and I, I don't think anyone, I mean, this has been around for a long time, the more that you can motivate people with what is the application of what you're doing, the easier those you know partial differential equations and everything can, can become because you're realizing, okay, this, is, this has some tie to, some people enjoy it just because of the mental you know, exercise of it. And I respect that. Um, the math, but ma- math majors out there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Ma- many of us need to see that the, the the reason, the why behind it, um, and that 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 is beyond just the discovery, and and discovery is valid as well. But um, I think that uh, integrating it early on is important. I think there's been a lot of data that shows that people stay in engineering, 
Um, they engage more, they do better in their coursework if they can see that practical side to it. Um, so if anything, I think that the standard academic learning kind of lecture style, the kind of information download uh, is, is going to become more and more, um, it's going to have more and more context to it. I think with online learning and COVID has forced this, uh, that stuff's going to become even more commoditized, in my opinion. And we've been thinking about this for years in higher ed, is that, you know, you can take him a 101 from, you know, in a large class uh, from, from, you know, someone who's, who's pretty good, or you can take it online at your convenience, you know, from someone who's amazing and get kind of the same experience. Now, when you get to a design course, that's that hands-on stuff that you really can't replace. And so... I think even more so we're going to see a shift for the university to be a place where we do hands-on learning because a lot of the, the um, kind of standard academic learning can be, can be delivered online quite effectively. Um, and I wouldn't say that before, you know, a year or two ago, but I think it's getting better and better to the point where, and, and cheaper, <laughs> to be honest, which is a big deal. Um, so, so yeah, I'm a big fan of hands-on um, active learning. Yeah. Do you think that, something that seems to go hand in hand with these efforts and these sort of multidisciplinary teams that are focused on applying engineering to global health is the formation of companies. Is entrepreneurship something that's a, um, a sort of explicit goal of what you're trying to do? Or is it sort of just a, um, a I guess, side effect or um, a symptom of people trying to innovate? What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I will be the first to confess, and anyone who knows me closely, that I'm not like a... Uh, I'm not as much of an entrepreneur as I should be in terms of, you know, someone who's who's uh, kind of scrappy and resourceful and, and really thinking about how to, you know, how to get a product forward. I, I love teaching and um, entrepreneurship does end up being a natural route for many of our ideas to get out there. Um, there are also other avenues of licensing opportunities or frankly, just, you know, students who then down the road will engage with companies or start companies or be a part of larger companies. Um, and, you know, back to the kind of question around design health, that's something that early on I've, I, I, I really wanted for design health is because I've seen many entrepreneurship programs um, that are measured by, and, and I helped start, uh, you know, one in, in Texas, the biodesign program that are, are, are good and they measure their success though, primarily through kind of money raised uh, um, you know, companies formed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's a place for those. But I think that we can have much more success. Um, and I learned this from a couple of colleagues along the way who have been successful if we focus on, you know, training the individual and really focus on their um, development um, and their learning. Um, that's our job here in academia. And then then entrepreneurship and, and companies will come out of that. But I really believe in creating, and I think my, my, my uh, colleagues in NGEN uh, and other places will agree that really focusing on the founder, the, the entrepreneur, and developing their skill set is more important than their output at this phase. The output will come. Uh, and I think focusing on just the entrepreneurship can be difficult and, and can actually harm uh, when you're trying to teach someone. So I, we do many things in design health that, to be honest, if, if I wasn't, if, if I was an entrepreneur, if even I was at Medtronic, I would not choose to do. I mean, there's, there's conversations I've had or decisions on projects that I, if I was only focused on launching a company, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have made those decisions, but, but I'm more focused on developing the, the student. And, um, and so that's how we make our decisions. Interesting. Along those lines of developing the student, uh, do you believe in a more general holistic view of engineering education or more of a specialized one? And if so, I mean, at what point do you think that specialization should occur? Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a deep question. I, <laughs> that's a hotly debated one. And I think it's, it's, uh, there are, I, I don't think it's a kind of, a, uh, necessarily one or the other. I think there are places for people who do both. Um, and if my desire is to become the world expert in, you know, I studied cardiovascular biomechanics when I was in uh, my PhD. If, and I have friends that are just, you know, super great at that one thing. Um, I applaud that because we need those types of people. Um, but I think providing kind of a, a more holistic education is what I'm a big fan of. And I think biomedical engineering, I know this is a controversial statement, uh, really was formed to 
be a little bit more of an application specific, not a technologically specific engineering discipline. So mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, which are and, and chemical engineering, and, and others that are really focused on expertise, technical expertise. Biomedical engineering is really focused on what's the problem. Um, that's why we have this kind of needs-driven approach, and that's why I think it's been most successful in biomedical engineering because we have these really smart students that love problems in medicine, and then they're able to say, ah, oh, well, we could we could write a piece of software, we could you know we could breadboard something, we could you know three D print something, we could we could approach this from a lot of different ways. Um, that's why I reside with and identify in biomedical engineering um, because I think that by its nature um, it's a more holistic of an education that has its downsides as we often talk about as well um, but I think biomedical engineers make for great leaders great product development uh, uh, folks 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 who can be able to look at a problem from different ways um, and they find interesting problems to solve in research too and aren't constrained by the typical kind of academic silos so that's why I'm excited about biomedical engineering despite its faults and everyone's saying ah you know it's too broad too broad I uh, I think it's uh, I think it has some real strengths so what is your day-to-day look like now I mean how much time do you spend you know I know that the design health program has like several teams and um, how much time I guess do you devote to specific or, or sorry more general education uh, versus kind of mentoring those teams uh, on a you know team by team basis yeah um it's a good question i should i I should kind of update my obviously things have changed a lot in the last few months so i haven't haven't done the analysis to see how much um but um so uh, paul ferris who's who's my my colleague and i and you should definitely talk to paul if you haven't had the opportunity to but he and i um kind of tag team a lot on on a lot of stuff and then along with with mark and mark palmieri and, and ann satterback and everyone um so there's a lot of and that's one of the things I love about where I work right now is that it's, you know, it maybe if I had my own research lab, I'd be a little bit more independent, but I actually really love this collaborative nature of, of how we teach and how we approach a lot of this stuff. And, and that extends not just to those four that I mentioned, but to, to Kathy Nightingale and Craig Enriquez and all, all the faculty. It's very, when it comes to teaching, everyone seems to be very much, um, uh, you know, kind of very helpful and, and which is great and, and in research too. But it's specifically in teaching. Um, so uh, the reason why I mentioned that is so Paul Ferris and I cover both the medical device um, uh, master's certificate. And that's really what Paul's, Paul's uh, leading and he has constructed and has done a really great job on by helping with that. And Paul and I both work on design health. I would say Paul does just as much as I do on design health as well. He just does a lot of great stuff. So, um, so the medical device design certificate and design health come with a series of courses um, there's there's uh, about four different courses that Paul and I uh, team teach, um, along with a few others. Joe Knight, who's in I and E, and also in Pratt, um, and so it's it's very dynamic. But I would say all of that kind of design health, the BME Medical Device Master Certificate. I mean that takes up a good seventy to eighty percent of my time, and then the other twenty percent is devoted to a, a number of. Kind of little research projects which are very much kind of product development type projects going on so i have a lot of um, students working on kind of independent study type projects in our design health lab a um, couple of research papers we're working on still do uh, uh, a considerable amount of work on covid related stuff for the hospital um, do um, some mentoring um, of, of uh, some do some k-12 through outreach do a little bit, it's a sprinkling of stuff, do, do, assisting a couple of universities outside, in the, so one in Thailand and, and, and uh, some, some other places, and we are having some conversations with uh, some folks in Sri Lanka about helping them get set up in their programs. So that's probably like a third to maybe 20% to a third of that is like a, a bunch of other stuff. And then about, you know, 60, 70% is, is, um, is focused on these programs. You mentioned several times uh, specific uh you know, things that your teams were able to do for uh, in response to COVID. I know I, I know I was sort of amazed at um, you mentioned the face shields earlier. You know, I, I saw like the posts that, you know, Duke on Facebook and Instagram and just efforts and to um, work with the hospital to combat COVID. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, how you were able to respond to that? Yeah, that was a really fun, uh, well, fun, hard, hard, fun experience. <laughs> um you know, back in March, uh, I got contacted and many of us got contacted about, you know, building ventilators. So I had some 
some friends of mine and, and Ann Satterbeck did as well of people who, you know, were like, Hey, we need to, we need to build ventilators. You know, what's Duke doing to build ventilators? And, uh, you know, being around the med tech industry for a while, um, and thinking about human centered design, I thought, okay, well, that's, that's a need definitely. And, and we may come to that. And, you know, in New York, they definitely did. Um, but let's figure out what we really need. And so we ended up spending the first couple of weeks, the team, really understanding what the needs of the hospital were. You know, we, we quickly learned that we're probably not, the way that the data was looking, we probably weren't going to need extra ventilators, um, but we were going to need PPE. And at the time, people weren't really thinking about PPE as much. Um, obviously, now we're like, yeah, everyone needs PPE. But um, we we were, people people were kind of saying, hey, what, what are you doing? Why don't you start 3D printing ventilators and, and all this stuff? And there were some high profile, you know, universities, you know, building ventilators and stuff. Uh, you know, looking back at it, I'm very glad that we slowed down and really looked at what what is needed. And we ended up setting up a process, um, which was quite, um, I think, rigorous and structured compared to what a lot of people were doing. Uh, again, drawing on our industry experience. And there's some, several of us who have worked in industry, Paul Ferris and you know, and set her back and Mark has done a lot of work in industry. Um, and, and we had established relationships through design health to our folks in the medical center. And so we have these interdisciplinary teams of nurses, doctors, um, and engineers that were following a pretty structured process to tackle needs for Duke. And we're proud that we kind of held that focus. Um, there are many needs and I respect anyone who put forth the effort to tackle, you know, needs globally. And I, there still are a lot of needs globally with COVID. Um, but I think because of our focus and because of the process we had put in place, we were able to address local needs relatively quickly. So we were able to mobilize with the help of Chip Bobbert, a lot of the resources in the, in the collab to 3D print things. Um, we uh, engaged with the outside manufacturers. Um, we used, um, you know, injection molding techniques. Uh, and again, Chip led the face shield stuff. Um, but the other thing that was really important with us who have been through actually getting a medical product to market was the safety and the quality. And that was something that, to be honest, scared me half to death when I saw all these crazy ventilator designs and face mask designs that everyone was coming up with and getting pressed for, but hadn't been through the rigorous testing and um, the quality um, that, uh, that we're used to in med tech. And, and granted, you know, I come from a large company where that's pretty high priority, but you, you, you really do need to think about the risks and about testing and about regulatory approval and throwing something together to save someone's life is, is great. Um, but if you have time to do testing, you should do testing and really, really challenge, you know, is this going to do what I'm going to do or what I needed to do uh, consistently? So that was also something we did a lot of was testing and, and documentation, which no one likes to do, but we forced, <laughs> forced ourselves to do it. Um, and so practice what you preach. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was hard, <laughs> um, but uh, we were able to get through that. And, and then just the folks at Duke Health were, were wonderful. I mean, we had uh, literally weekly, well, we had daily meetings initially um, when, when we were in, in, the, in the middle of it and it was a full-time job. And then that, that group grew to, I mean, there were probably um, 30 staff and faculty involved with that group. Plus almost, uh, I think we had at some point, 150 students doing like face shield stuff. And, um, it was really exciting. It was fun to see. And I'm, I'm glad though it was, it was a, it was a sprint. And then, um, you know, come summer we had to kind of turn it into a marathon, kind of figure out how can we do things sustainably. Um, but we were able to provide, um, several products that are actually in the hospital right now. So if you go to, like I was at Duke Health the other day and people were all wearing their blue face shield masks that we had designed, uh, 11 months ago, which was, which was kind of fun to see. I mean, there, there, it wasn't a perfect product, but for, the time that we had on our hands, we, we did our best. That's that's so cool to hear. Both Duke and Medtronic, and when I say Medtronic, I kind of been using it in place of any large uh, med tech company. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very large institutions, um, and you can argue that they have drastically different kind of mission statements. How do you think that being at Duke during that time allowed you to uh, kind of creatively uh, take the needs of your local community into, into play versus um, a larger a company with, I guess, a different goal. Um, how, how do you think being at Duke allowed you to innovate in that way? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a great question. I think it would be, it would have been different if I was at Medtronic. Um, 
And Medtronic did a lot of interesting, made a lot of interesting moves during the, and, and a lot of effective moves um, during the COVID pandemic and R. I mean, they, they open sourced a lot of their ventilator designs and did things. Um, we actually covered that in our medical instrumentation class. Oh, uh, great. Dr. Okay. Yeah. Wolf, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Wolf, uh, Pat, he's, he, he knows the med tech industry very well. So um, I, I think so. So the thing about Medtronic is that for good or for bad, you have a large institution that's closely scrutinized um, and can't, uh, can, can, can quickly put out what they can, but, but there's not a whole lot of freedom to kind of do seat of your pants work at, at a large institution by Medtronic. There's, there's a lot of, of legality a lot of uh, uh, protection, a lot of a lot of regulation that Medtronic is, is scrutinized under. Now, delivering healthcare at, at the Duke Hospital also has a lot of regulation, but they're they have the patients in front of them and they have the urgency and they just need to do whatever they can do. So, um, we were able to when we were working at Duke Hospital see the need, run back, build something, go back in the hospital, get the appropriate approvals, and implement something quite quickly. Um, because there's, you know, the scope of, of practicing medicine actually covers quite a bit. If I'm a, if I'm selling a product, I have to go through FDA approval and do everything. In some cases, even within Duke, we have to go through FDA approval, and we and we did interact with the FDA quite a bit. But in many cases, the urgency was there, and they were very low risk products, and we were able to use our own discretion, and obviously always get the appropriate approvals in the hospital to move forward. So, so those um, product cycles were very tight. You know, on a matter of weeks, whereas at Medtronic, they're typically in a matter of months or years. So that's um, that's the big difference, and and it's kind of just how it has to be um, because you don't want Medtronic, you know, putting out you know kind of poorly made medical devices. <laughs> and so um, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a it's it's a balance. Um, it was inspiring to see everyone getting interested in medical device design all of a sudden and uh, for good or for bad. And then it was, it was, I think a lot of companies learned a lot about being able to ramp up manufacturing and supply chain. Um, yeah. That we really, that we had never seen the demand like that before. Yeah. And, and sort of as your scope transitions from, you know, needs of a local community to more, you know, global um, issues, do you think the onus of, innovating to solve these issues falls on research institutions like Duke or large companies like Medtronic. What are your thoughts on who is responsible or perhaps uh, maybe, you know, what do you think collaboration between these types of institutions is something that will um, be the most beneficial? Yeah, um, it's a good question as to who is responsible. I'll probably keep that at arm's length because that's a, a, a philosoph- ethical philosophical uh, discussion that, that I, you know, I, I definitely have some thoughts about, but I, I do think, you know, I, I would, I would argue just, you know, broadly, we all have responsibility uh, in my, my view of the world. We all have responsibility to, to engage in such a way that we're helping the most, um, no, the, you know, the most number of people um, regardless of, of political boundaries. So and that's, just, that's just what I, I, I believe in that we should be, we should feel responsible for as a citizen of the world for, for folks outside of our own community. Um, but how to most, I, 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 I'm glad to take a swing more at, you know, how do we effectively do that? Because I think that, I think, I think universities are really unique places in terms of an institution. I think you have big companies like Medtronic that have their own strengths um, then you have a lot of startups that have their own strengths, and and I think about these these institutions, and then there's kind of there's there's also government and policy, which I won't, won't touch on right now, but that when we talk about going into a country and innovating and helping inside of a country, that can have huge implications as well. Um, but that's actually very different from country to country. Um, so, you know, where do universities help? I, I, universities. One of the things I love about being an academic is that there's there's this kind of this this neutral. Um, kind of academic, um, I, I don't, I don't want to say like bond, but, but for lack of a better word, there's, there's a lot of international kind of ties across universities. Obviously a large part of our, of our faculty and students are, are from other countries, but you know, all of my colleagues at, at different universities around the world, there's kind of a common, a common mission there, a common, a common bond that we're trying to do things. And, and I think that does transcend a lot of political and, um, um, and, and, political kind of boundaries that are put in place. So I think, I think out of all these institutions, oftentimes um, academia is more globally connected. 
than most institutions um, in, in the world. I think Medtronic and large med multinational medical device companies are also connected, um, but their drivers, you know, are different. Their products are different. So they are publicly traded companies that, that need to make a profit and they operate and they're very good at execution and delivery and, um, and supply chain. Um, and they have huge strengths in that area. Academia does not. <laughs> Academia is very good at, you know, nurturing students, arguably good at nurturing students, you know, fostering ideas, um, doing creative long-term thinking um, and, and, you know, interdisciplinary activities. So two very different things. Um, what I would hope to see more of is that academic industry collaboration where you can rely on, so if I have, even, even if I'm a startup or if I spin out a company from Duke, if I have a, a life-changing technology, I need a large organization like a Medtronic or, you know, like with, with a vaccine, if a Pfizer or a Moderna that, that works also with a whole other network of companies that we don't see to be able to quickly distribute um, a product into, into the system, into, into, into the world. So there's things that Medtronic and large companies are very good at. Um, it's that implementation stuff I was talking about before. And I loved learning that while I was at Medtronic, how to deal with the FDA, how, how to run a clinical trial, how to design for manufacture, how to, how to set up a supply chain, how to, how to do all that stuff. That's, that's something that, to be very honest, no university is good at. Um, that's something that, that big companies are really good at. But then companies have a hard time innovating sometimes uh, because they, they are more geared towards execution. Um, there are companies that are innovative that are big. Um, they're, they're rare. And oftentimes their innovation comes from acquiring startups. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that there's some amount of collaboration between the two that, that really needs to happen for global health. And I'll just mention, or I'll mention one more thing about global health is that I really feel strongly that we need to work inside of countries for, for that country instead of necessarily this model of you know, going in to sell a product or going in to give a design to someone. There really has to be a network and an infrastructure within a, com a company to be able to do that. And I think what we're seeing a lot is, is large multinational companies buying startups that are actually outside of the US in these countries that have really interesting products and they're, they're buying, selling, manufacturing, designing in those countries. And uh, that's really, really cool. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of kind of a distribution of, of, of effort across these, these institutions, but also globally um, within these countries, them designing, building, manufacturing for their own healthcare systems because their needs are different. From a student perspective, do you think that, um, you know, because I know at Duke, um, there are some programs like Duke Engage where people go to, um, ten, I think, Tanzania uh, to help repair these medical devices. Do you think that that's a perspective that students can learn early on? And would you like to see um, more opportunities at undergraduate institutions or even, you know, in the graduate space as well um, to, for students to sort of, you know, have that perspective going in, you know, sort of complementary to hands-on learning in the lab or sort of academic learning in the classroom? Yes, I, I think that those global experiences, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of them. And I was... I was in Tanzania two two years ago, last not last summer, the summer before, with that Duke Engage program, actually. Uh, so I was alongside some of our BME students fixing medical equipment in hospitals in Tanzania um, two summers ago, and I think I think it's it's beneficial. It's it's interesting. I mean, there's there's two sides to that because you want to um, you want to you want to approach those those kinds of experiences with care, in that knowing that you're there to assist kind of local capacity, not necessarily to bestow your amazing engineering skills on, you know, I mean, to be, to be honest, I mean, I, I did okay soldering a few EKG machines and things like that. But I think, I think the right, the right mentality going into that kind of an experience is really to learn from people, not to come to bestow knowledge or designs or whatever like that, um, and to help share and, and build capacity. Um, so one of the cornerstones of, of, of EWH uh, is to help build that local capacity. I'm a big fan of that. I, at the GMI program I ran at, at Rice, we would go down to Costa Rica and Brazil 
and we would teach uh, local students and our own students together in the same class. And then we would work with local universities to design products for their own kind of hospital systems and really help facilitate that process, um, but by no means make them dependent on us or us dependent on them. It was more of a sharing of knowledge. And I, I maintain that I gained way more from that experience and my students gained way more from that experience than we necessarily gave. Um, so, so yes, I do think that those experiences are important, not only for kind of addressing larger issues of global health, but also just for the, the learning that they provide to our students and, and opening up their perspective, their, their minds to, to, to needs outside of their own, their own local environment. Absolutely. That's, that's really neat. Moving again towards the, uh, the sphere of where you're working with teams and design projects, um, both internationally and here at Duke. I know a lot of times undergraduates feel like they're limited in both uh, technical knowledge and in resources in designing a product or in um, you know, finding a solution to a specific problem. What's your approach to mentoring these design teams and motivating students um, in, in solving problems on, on a larger scale? And like you said, teams that you've uh, mentored have become you know, very successful in, in developing patents and the, and the like. Uh, what's, what's your approach with that? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I you know I I um you know, I was focused on on teaching the process and making sure students learn the process. And so whereas they might not necessarily have the answers right now and and maybe even the skills they're still learning them, they'll have that process knowledge that then in the future when they they need to um, tackle a difficult problem, they can they'll either have those skills at that point or they'll they'll be able to find people that do. I mean, I admittedly am a, am a jack of all trades, master of none, and so and I tackle projects in design health with my colleagues that are in oncology or surgery or OBGYN, and I I don't often have any context in those areas. So what I do is I rely on my colleagues, um, my network. I rely on the people that that I know have expertise in these areas, and really that's that's what design is 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 about. It's it's not about forcing your expertise onto a problem. It's about figuring out the problem and then finding the right expertise. And oftentimes that, that means you're, you don't have it. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable saying I don't have that expertise most of the time. So I'm usually, you know, pinging, you know, Mark Palmieri, if I need some, some help on some electronics or I'm, I go and, you know, talk to, talk to Craig Enriquez or, or Kathy Nightingale about, about uh, maybe an ultrasound question or, you know, so it's, it's, um, it's okay. I, I feel like, I feel like in academia, we, we, we aren't trained to be okay with, with um, uh, not having the answer. And, and I feel like sometimes uh, we need to be honest with ourselves and say, you know, this problem could be better solved by someone else. And so I'm going to figure out who that person is and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and learn as much as I can, but I'm going to bring in their expertise. And I think that's, that's what successful product development is all about. It's not about knowing everything. It's about knowing who to bring in. Yeah, and it also seems uh, it's interesting that you met sort of your perspective on both how it's been collaborating in academia. It seems like um, the trait of being a good listener is very valuable, both while at Duke and while in, you know, countries like Costa Rica or Tanzania. So um, we're both in Dr. Palmieri's design right now. And I think that what we've quickly learned is that you're going to there are more questions than answers all the time. And I, yep. I think that it's. Um, interesting to hear from you that you know it, I guess it um, just stays it never stops. yeah exactly <laughs> right right <laughs> right yeah no it's especially in design there's no right answer as uh, as my, my friend Paul Ferris always says and we don't know the answer by the end in design health for example they the student teams are the experts by the end of the year I am I'm not they know much more about the problem and the solution than I do so I'm just facilitating that and in terms of you know in perhaps high school students who are thinking about being engineer, becoming engineers or current undergraduates um, at Duke. Do you, do you have advice, a unique perspective that you have is sort of the intersection between industry and academia. Um, I know a lot of uh, engineering students who maybe perhaps want to pursue BME because they like the topic, but um, they find themselves double majoring in EC as well because they want to work in industry. You know, what, what advice would you give to a student who's looking to sort of have perspective in both areas like you do? Yeah, that's the the perennial like do B, <laughs> yeah. do BMEs get jobs, right? That's that's, <laughs> that's the one that's the one thing that uh, I've always asked um and it's a great it's a great question. I I would say, you know, 
the conversation that I have often with students and, and I get I, I, I joke with my colleagues, I get I get like sophomores, a lot of sophomores coming in being like, oh, my gosh, I thought I wanted to be a BME. But do BMEs get jobs? And I, I, I want a double major in, in ME or ECE. And 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 then also at the back end uh, for seniors, you know, do I need to go and get a graduate degree? Should I get a master's degree or, you know, what's the, the situation there? So um couple of thoughts on that. Um, uh, all, all very valid concerns and questions. Um, you know, my thought is, um, so, so yeah, I, I think, I think, a, you know, double majoring approach is an interesting one. And I would say it's very, it's, it's kind of unique to Duke that you can double major in BME and ME or BME and ECE, because that's, it's not done at most universities. You sometimes you can get a minor in, yeah, sometimes you get a minor in something, but when, when you see double major in like EC and ME, people are like, oh my gosh, wow, what did this person do? So um, I, it's an interesting option. And I would say it's it's something that you can definitely do to, to, to deepen your expertise in a certain area if you know that's what you love and that's what you want to do. I would say also you need to think about what kind of job you want. And that's a whole other conversation um, in industry. You know, BMEs are trained broadly um, and they're really well suited for jobs that need that broad level of expertise. So things like product development or design or, um, you know, some, sometimes people have misconceptions that these are, are boring jobs, but things like regulatory or quality or um uh, you know, clinical clinical trials, things like that. These can be fascinating jobs that BMEs are exceptionally well equipped to do. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not the, you know, being a, a CAD monkey, which, you know, like I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer, right? So it was like, oh, I right, want right. to go and do CAD for a big company. That's like my <laughs> dream job, right? Um, if that's your dream job, awesome. Go for it. And you know what? I Those students... I guess you're recording this, so it's already already too late. But you know, those students, I would say, you know, maybe you should be a mechanical engineer if that's all you want to do is CAD. Um, yeah, you're you're going to get some exposure to that and BME. But if really all you want to do is is CAD stuff and focus on the mechanical side of things and become a technical expert, yeah, BME might not be the right field for you. Um, now, now that said, there are kind of technical fields that are BME specific. So if someone like really wanted to do tissue engineering or or some 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 other areas of, of BME have are, are really BME fields. But, you know, on the medical device side, you, you know, electronics, software, mechanical stuff, those actually have disciplines that they all grew out of. And, and we just kind of give you a little bit of, of everything. So, um, so yeah, I would just say, you know, what is it do you want to do? What, what do you, what do you want to do in industry? If you want a broader job, then BME is a great, a great uh, opportunity. And, and you might not be looking at the right opportunities because everyone goes right to like the product development engineer, R&D engineer, um, which are usually the ones that require the deep technical expertise. But there are tons of opportunities there. And my colleague and I did a little bit of a, a, an exercise two years ago where we looked at job listings at the top medtech, biotech and, and other companies and which of them look for mechanical versus electrical versus BME versus other things. And we didn't find a difference between BMEs and MEs and, and ECEs. Um, in fact, BMEs are, are, are usually mentioned more. It's just you have to know which jobs you're looking at. Because, yeah, if, if you're looking at, you know, you want to CAD and there's an entry-level CADing job, to be honest, I probably am going to hire the, the mechanical engineer over the BME if I just want that person to CAD for me because that will have, have more experience. So, so yeah, it's, it's a common concern, um, but I think that's just the nature of BME. Um, and it's important for people to kind of realize that early on in their careers. Yeah, for sure. One of the questions we like to ask that I think has been really insightful um, is about any mistakes you've made, I guess, in your career that you can identify um, that you've learned lessons from that you think would be useful to hear. Yeah, lots of mistakes. Plenty <laughs> of mistakes. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say I regret any of them, though. Um, I really feel, and this is, again, the design instructor in me, that, that I really think mistakes are valuable. And and my advice... <laughs> I had a feeling you'd like this question. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, my, my, advice, my advice for anyone is to go and just make some mistakes because I do think that oftentimes we have mental models of, of our careers and they go untested until it gets too late. So the the you know the the person that always wanted to study medicine and they're finally into medical school and they realize oh this is what medicine's like 
or the person who really wanted to be an engineer and finally gets to their first CAD job and is sitting doing CAD day in, day out. And it was like, oh, is, is this really what it's like? So I really think that getting in situations where you can test your hypothesis about what will make you happy, fulfilled, uh, what, 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 you know, I, I really am a big fan of that. And, and in this process of kind of designing your, your career, you know, thinking about, okay, this is my hypothesis that I would really be good at and enjoy, you know, X. Well, can I, can I do everything I can to get a job or get an internship, say between my junior and senior year to test out that hypothesis? Um, because I don't want to let that hypothesis go untested until I've committed to say a PhD program and I'm in the seventh year of my PhD and then I'm like, oh, did I really want to do this? So, so mistakes, yeah, mistakes, make them early, make them often and really just try and, we talk about killer experiments a lot in design, but try and test those hypotheses early on. So I, I mean, I pivoted, I, I was a mechanical engineer. I did want to be a biomedical engineer. Um, I did a bunch of internships, you know, I, I was, got my PhD, then I went into industry, then I went into academia, and who knows what I'll do? I mean, to be honest, who knows what I'll do next? Um, but I think that iterative process is, is how you optimize um, things that matter to you. Absolutely. Wow. And now as we wrap up, there are two kind of rapid fire questions that we like to ask sure. all of our guests. Uh, the first one is if you're currently reading any books or if there's any book that you highly recommend. Oh gosh. Yeah. You're, you're, you're going to get me. So currently reading, I wish I could say it was something highly, um, like intellectual. I did, <laughs> I did, I, I did feel, I did, I did just, just finish this really interesting diffusions of innovation book, but that's not what I'm currently reading. But so if I would lie and say, I'd finished diffusion of innovations, which is the sociology book about uh, innovations, which is really interesting, but actually currently I'm reading land of stories with my 11 year old daughter, um, so that's, that's, that's what awesome. I'm, that's what I'm doing right now because it's her favorite book. And so we're kind of reading it together and some Harry and some Harry Potter with my, my, my son. So that's, that's actually what I'm reading right now. I'm not reading anything else. That's like super interesting. I mean, those are fun books, but that's been my favorite answer so far. I Great. Think I think it's a perfect <laughs> answer. And you know, I, I'm curious what I have to ask, like what, what, what which Harry Potter are you reading? <laughs> so we're on the fourth. We're trying to get it. So my, okay. so I have a, uh, a, 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 a 10 year old son, a 10 year old son who's working his way through Harry Potter. And then my, um, she, she actually just turned, turned 12. Um, so my 12 year old daughter who's, who's trying to get me, she's read all the land of stories books. So she's trying to read those with me. So we're on the first one. Wow. So. Sounds exciting. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the second question is like, I guess totally random. It's, um, what are your, are you a coffee or tea? Like what are your coffee tea habits? <laughs> it's funny i actually don't drink either coffee or tea i i drink a lot of water and um i am uh i do like i do like um like flavored water and and sodas and things like that so uh not not like regular soda but i do like you know um so yeah i don't i don't don't do much coffee and tea I just, you're the third person in a row i think to give us that answer is that right so, no no coffee only water yeah i, mean, I need, need to try that out it's a good hypothesis yeah it's pretty good i got my 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 water that i'm down right here so awesome wow so again thank you so much for taking the time this is an awesome conversation my pleasure really enjoyed it um and yeah always happy to talk more with students or you know one-on-one -on -one. very available That was a very interesting conversation. I definitely learned a lot about global health and how that interplays with engineering and I guess what the ideal way for global health and engineering would be to interact with each other. Yeah, and along those lines, I think something that was really interesting as well is how he described Duke responding to the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, and it was also interesting because you know he's worked at Medtronic, he worked at Duke, and he talked about how at Duke, um, you can sort of tackle these community-based problems really quickly, but perhaps at Medtronic, which is like a huge corporation, obviously, um, you know, everything has to go through regulations and you have to sort of force yourself to look at broader issues and it takes time to respond to things, so, yeah. yeah. I, don't know, I don't know about you, but I, I found it kind of cool to like imagine all of our professors kind of sitting in like a task force room working on using the same methodologies that they're teaching us to solve this real world urgent problem that that was placed ahead of them so like creating PPE for COVID um, and for first responders um, I really enjoyed hearing about that yeah and it's that's an interesting point because you don't really see professors do that often right I mean you know a lot of engineering professors today they studied engineering right but they 
they do engineering research. So you don't, it's hard to imagine them like sitting in, uh, uh, in a room together, like designing things, right? So that's- really I wonder I wonder what kind of uh, project management they use. They use an agile or waterfall. waterfall <laughs> like, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. Also because I think, um, you know, Dr. Richardson points out that there is a role for institutions like Duke, even though they're academic institutions, to tackle these global health issues, right? We often think of uh, places like Duke as performing like this really innovative global health research and approaching things from an academic perspective. But he shows that through things like design teams, you can have a hands-on approach to these things. So that was awesome. I completely agree. Uh, it's been great to be personally affected by his uh, influence on the curriculum through the increase in design that I've seen over my time at Duke. Um, and again, like I said, I, I learned a lot from this conversation. And I hope you guys did too. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts at After Office Hours and our Instagram at double underscore at after double underscore office hours. <laughs> Rowan, I can't believe you haven't memorized this, like to have it down in your sleep. I know, I know. It's just a mouthful and you get better at this. <laughs> I know. But in all seriousness, we do want to hear feedback from you guys. We want to hear what your thoughts. Uh, send us a message. Let us know who you want to hear on our podcast next, what kind of questions you want, what you want to hear more of, less of. We are always open to suggestions. Um, so, again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.